Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons, joined as always by Logan Denning, and we are breaking down American history in chronological order, one movie at a time. Last week, we talked about both Pocahontas and the New World, and today, it's a romping adventure, (laughs) Mayflower, the Pilgrim's Adventure, a 1979 made-for-TV movie. Uh, just real quick, Logan, what, what did you think of Mayflower, the Pilgrim's Adventure? So, uh, <laughs> between Valhalla Rising and New World... We're not off to a great start, are we? And this movie, which I didn't watch Pocahontas, so I won't count Pocahontas, but we're 0 for 3 so far on good movies. <laughs> no, I, I actually, now you say that. This might have been the best one so far. Yeah, that's that's a good point. This might have been the best one so far, and I did not like this movie. Yeah, so <laughs> this is not good. I had such low expectations though going in. So what can I say now? It's a sixty-seven percent audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't even have critics' scores at all. It's a six point zero on yeah. IMDb. I wrote, it's just a movie. It's not bad. It's not good. Like I didn't dislike it. It was just neutral to me. It was definitely something you could see showing a class. I, so I didn't... Well, other than the the dude playing uh, John Alden was horrible. Oh, my God. Michael Beck's accent is so trash. What is he doing? It's so trash. <laughs> it is the worst fake British accent. They couldn't find a real British person? He was trying for British? <laughs> I, I couldn't even... I assume so. Is it The the guy is British. John Alden is a British guy. <laughs> I couldn't even figure out what he was trying to do. It was so- well... It was funny, too, because some of them, like, some of the other passengers th- who were all, you know, supposedly British. Right, right. Just didn't even try. They were just like, I'm just American accent. I'm, you're right, which is way less distracting than, I, I get it, I sound like I'm being, like, mean. No, I legit didn't understand what he was trying to do. Like, you're saying that was a British accent? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Did not even occur to me that's what he was going for. And no, it was just a, it was just a bad it was a bad <laughs> British accent. It was just bad. And so yeah, like I said, some of the other passengers just dropped it. None of the performances in this movie are are very good. Anthony Hopkins is probably the only one that's like serviceable, and the rest of them are just so corny. Yeah, Even yeah. the the one like the best the best of them are corny, and then the rest are like actively bad. Yeah, I was not a fan of this movie. No, I, I no, I I don't disagree. Like I said, I didn't. I didn't like it at all either. I just wasn't necessarily annoyed by it. And it's, and it's short enough that, that yeah. It also, like, <laughs> it's hard to, like, watch a movie and get invested in characters when the movie is trying to have these, like, sympathetic characters who I found personally to be, like, not even good people. These are all, like, hardcore religious fundamentalists. And they're like, you know, it's just, I didn't like any of them. I didn't like any of that. And I know that that's historically accurate. I, I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But they're framing it like, oh, they're, you know, religiously persecuted, which they were. I'm actually going to call that a positive because I think it, it highlights the, that these are real people. And the, yeah, you're, which, no, again, watching it, it's annoying because there's really no one to root for and you don't like anybody because the ship's crew's being right. jerks to the, the pilgrims and the pilgrims are being jerks to the ship's crew. And then there's even individuals within that that suck. And even John Alden trying to woo the girls, there's kind of, petty about how he's dealing with the girl and she's so yeah everybody sucks but in a a way that seems kind of like yeah you know what there's there's no heroes on this trip it's just real life i don't know like they they framed things really weirdly too like with the whole miles standish thing it's like oh he's like a scumbag for trying to cheat on his wife for pretty much the whole journey but actually he's a good guy and he's just misunderstood because the only reason he wanted to cheat on his wife was because the girl he wanted to cheat with reminded him of his wife. So he's actually not a bad guy. 
It's like, no, he's still a scumbag. What are you, <laughs> why are we having this, like, this shot of him at the end, like, holding his wife, being like, oh, I love you, Rose. And she's like, I know. It's like, what, what are you talking about? He, at the very beginning of the movie, was, like, openly talking about how hot the other girls were in front of his dying wife. Like, that guy sucks. <laughs> yeah, that was an odd redemption arc at the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. It's not a very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> and even the Christopher Jones, the Anthony Hopkins, Christopher Jones, the captain character, they have that. I'm not sure what the point of this scene was, maybe to show that he like cares about the success of his ship above everything else. But he openly calls out that one crew member. He's like, oh, I remember you from my trip to Norway. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he's, he's like, yeah, didn't you rape that one girl? And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I take I never ask. It's a point of honor. And he's like, well, you're a good sailor. So you're hired. You're on my crew now. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Right. And they never address it again. Yeah. And I even tried to Google that guy because they say his name and I couldn't find that he existed outside of this movie. So it wasn't even like that was, again, it could be, but it didn't seem to be like that was an Easter egg of like this actual guy. It was more just like, nope, we just made that up for a 1970s movie. Yeah. And what a what a weird thing for the <laughs> filmmaker. Like, there's a million ways that you can demonstrate that he cares about, you know, the success of his crew or the success of his ship over everything else. Why do you need to bring sexual assault? Into- I don't. I did not understand that. I was like, "This is this is strange." But you know, also it's the seventies. No, so right, like, right. I don't know. Maybe it's a maybe it's like a an, an era thing that I just don't get. Yeah. Uh, last thing on that, real quick, before we kind of start breaking down the historical context here for those who haven't lost interest yet. So it's this was directed by George Schaefer, who who I had not heard of before, but I was looking through his IMDb. He's just kind of a Working director at the time. Uh, he was even president of the Directors Guild for a few years around this time. Just a guy that did a lot of TV movies, a lot of Shakespeare adaptations for the small screen, uh, a lot of remakes of older movies. Like, I remember there's like a TV remake of Arsenic and Old Lace. Like, a lot of those unnecessary projects that they would just throw on TV. That was this guy's bread and butter. He did a few theatrical releases, but nothing I'd, nothing I'd really heard of. And then it stars, as we, we've kind of already mentioned, Anthony Hopkins. He does star as Christopher Jones, who's the captain of the Mayflower ship. And then the other main guy they credit, at least like on the cover art and stuff, is Richard Crenna, uh, who plays William Brewster, the leader of the Congregation of Pilgrims here. And I did not really recognize the name. His uh, his best known for on IMDb is like all the Rambo movies, but I'm not familiar enough with those to have recognized him at all. Did you know? Have you seen the Rambo movies? Do you know Richard Crenna? I've seen the Rambo movies. Who is he in the Rambo movies? Troutman, but that doesn't mean anything to me. But he's in like all oh, of them. Man, it's been so long since I've seen. Oh, 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 oh! Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I didn't recognize him outside of without the green beret and clean shaven. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now that I'm looking at a picture, okay, yeah, that is the that is the same guy. Okay, okay, so context here let's before we get so again what we like kind of like to do on all these for anybody who's new is so we have the story that the movie tells and we want to give the context leading up to the events in the film kind of talk about what's right and wrong within what we see in the film and then maybe talk about the after effects uh from the events that take place uh outside of the film afterward so obviously is in kind of a neat way again logan's right this is not a good movie but i thought it was interesting <laughs> that this is not about Plymouth Colony in the New World. This is about the sailing across. We get a little yeah. bit of them basically loading up the ship, and then 90% of the movie is the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, which I thought was yeah both interesting from a filmmaking standpoint, but then also, as far as this project goes, a good choice for this project because this does kind of represent everyone coming over from Europe to the United States. And we kind of get our crossing the Atlantic movie. And it's also a good choice on the side of the filmmakers monetarily because they only have to build one (laughs) ship set and the whole movie takes place on this tiny little ship. And so they, you know, I mean, there's a couple scenes at the beginning where they're in buildings and stuff but basically yeah the rest of the movie is on this ship like it they probably did a couple days of shooting like in those buildings at the beginning and a day or two of shooting on the shores at the end but the rest of the movie is just on the ship so given the likely limited right budget that this made for tv movie had uh yeah good choice going with the 
with the sh- the ship's journey itself as the as the actual time period. Yeah, you didn't have to get into building this, you know, building a replica of the settlement and stuff like that, which would have been way more costly. Yeah, right. yeah, good call. Yeah. So context-wise, when I was doing the research for this, what it kind of hit me that I didn't really thought about before, and honestly, this is a great example of a lot of stuff from American history, and we'll probably see this going throughout this project, is the extent to which we have these stories from childhood of the early days of the United States and what, or America pre-United States. And it's just kind of interesting when you look at the research and kind of shift your perspective on all of these things. So how much of this with the pilgrims here was a consequence of historical timing? So this is all just basically, so 1620 is when this takes place. So we're about, what, 12, 13 years after the Jamestown colony episode. Right. But we're about 90 years after Henry VIII established the Church of England so that he could divorce his wife. So we're still less than a century away from that. And so in, in the meantime, you would have gone from, you know, Henry VIII switching to the Anglican Church, of which he's in charge of, to his daughter Mary trying to revert everything back to Catholicism, to then Elizabeth going again back to Protestantism. And then now we're in the reign of King James I in 1620 here who is firmly Anglican and wants to squash anybody speaking out against the Anglican church. And what you had at the time, though, again, going back for a couple of decades, still leading into today's story, is these quote-unquote Puritan groups that were still Anglican, but wanted to reform the Anglican church very similar to what Martin Luther might have started out initially trying to want to reform the Catholic Church before he decided to separate from it. That's kind of what these Puritan groups were doing. Most of them were kind of okay with working within the existing church, although King James didn't even like them. The pilgrims, who were not called pilgrims then, they became termed separatists because they felt the problems with the Anglican Church were so severe that they just needed to separate from it altogether and worship in their own way. Yeah. One of their main issues with the Anglican Church at the time was that they thought it was too Catholic. Yes. They thought that all the ornate outfits and the ceremonies and the bit, you know, like the big, you know, decadent services and and the, you know, the huge cathedrals and stuff, they they said, "Oh, this none of this is all like this is like idolatrous. Mm. This is too Catholic. It's and we just need to. It's religion is is supposed to be about like more suffering and <laughs> and uh, more plain. That's why that's like you know you that's like the quintessential imagery of a Puritan is like the black and white outfits, simple, right? In right. a very small like just a couple wooden benches and a guy at the front with the Bible talking about like the fear of God. Like that's. That's what they thought that the Church of England should be, um, and they thought the rest of it, all of the the trappings, was basically distraction. And I read the kind of the idea of they weren't a fan of the idea of a state religion that like that, too. that the government is kind of dictating to the entire nation what the faith official faith is. They like the idea of a small congregation that would just independently well, kind of no, govern they, itself, right? Or no. I think they wanted it to be the other way around. I think they wanted their religion to govern how the state was. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, as far as like just it's, it's, scale is more what I was talking about. They like the idea of a small congregation as opposed to right. Well, I guess I guess it, it, that's a good point. It it kind it morphed into that because like that's what we see in like their colonies is they their religion is essentially the state, but it's it's not on the scale of like of England it's on the scale of their their little settlement um that's that's a good point but yeah you're right they they did not like the fact that the king could be like oh no the church is going to do this and the church is going to do that so so this specific congregation these this group of separate separatists that will ultimately be boarding the mayflower here uh, in 1620 in 1608 to get away from the you know the persecution in England they did move to the netherlands that allowed them religious freedom but it just wasn't quite the right fit simply because they started realizing their kids were developing Dutch habits, like nothing bad. They were just becoming Dutch and not English. And so like they just didn't like the cultural influence that was kind of getting into their kids. So even though they had the religious freedom, it just wasn't what they wanted. So yeah. that's why as you're then nearing 1620, I think it's actually about 1617. They're like, okay, this isn't working either. 
So you would have known they would have known about the Jamestown colony about the time they're moving to the Netherlands is about the time the Jamestown colony is going on. So that's why I was saying about the whole timing thing. Their whole discontentedness times out perfectly with opportunities to sail to the new world. But that was still not like the first first and best idea. They were very, very apprehensive about the idea. They had heard about, you know, the devastation of the Jamestown colony losing what, what, 90 some percent of, you know, in that those first few years are dying and yeah. fears of the natives, lack of food, the ocean trip itself. They, they even talk about that in the movie. Yes, yes. There's like a there's a conversation that uh, William Brewster has with Christopher Jones. And Christopher Jones is basically like, hey, I know you're set on going to the New World, but like, you know, you heard about what happened to Jamestown. Right. It was like this, yeah, kind of a, a foreboding thing. And so we mentioned like the there's like all the charters and stuff. So it was like there was like the Jamestown charter or whatever it was called. So you, you kind of became like there was these little companies set up. We talked about this last time that you were going over there with kind of like a mandate of here's here's our scope. Here's our area. Here's what we're allowed to do. So they basically had to petition England to get that. And England was kind of just the point where like, yeah, just just yeah, well, that's fine. Just get out of here. I mean, that's civil version. But so why don't you talk about as, as we kind of down near the beginning of the movie here and embarking on this trip? Why don't you talk about some of the historical figures specifically and what they were doing heading in before the movie here? Yeah, so uh, so the captain of the ship, Christopher Jones, in the movie he's played by Anthony Hopkins, he was born in Essex around 1570. They're not sure exactly when. Um, you know, the records from that time are still a little sketchy. He was married at least twice and possibly three times, although the evidence for his third marriage is kind of circumstantial. I guess there's like a a widow whose name was Jones, who was in like the same oh, area, okay. something like that. But he was a, prior to him captaining the Mayflower, he was a successful businessman in the shipping industry. He made trips all around Europe. Uh, the first record of him captaining the Mayflower was in 1609 when he made a trip to Norway, which they actually talk about in the movie. Right. He moved to London in 1611 and continued his shipping business and sailing the Mayflower until its voyage to the New World in 1620. He departed with the Mayflower and all the pilgrims in September. They arrived in Cape Cod, which we we'll get to talk yeah, about yeah. a little bit. He just some stuff which we we'll talk about their their journey more in a minute. Yeah, but yeah. once he gets to the New World, he is initially is going to leave right away, but he like. Ha- a bunch of his crew get sick. Actually, like 20 of them die from whatever sickness the pilgrims had. So they're not able to leave until April, which just for reference, they arrived in November. And he goes back to England in 1621. And he's just kind of picks back up where he left off doing more trips around Europe and then dies in March of 1622 after a trip to France. And he was only like in his 50s. I was, gonna say, I was, I was thinking he retired. He, he didn't actually retire. I was thinking, cause he talks about in this film about retiring when he got back from the, but he didn't, didn't actually retire. No, he kept, he kept uh, okay. shipping. He did a, a few more trips, but I mean, it couldn't have been that many cause he died like less than a year later. Right. Um. So this actually highlights something that again, I've just never really researched this that much, and you just kind of have an impression from the kids. It actually didn't occur to me that the whole ship wasn't the church group. Like, oh, basically half the ship right. was the church group. The other half was the crew and some other passengers. And so, like, Christopher right. Christopher Jones here, he wasn't a pilgrim. He, he didn't care about the religious stuff. He was just the ship's captain. So, I nope. guess all that never really occurred to me. Right, yeah. And we say passengers, but, I mean, th- this was not a passenger ship this was a cargo ship mm. like they were treated like cargo they were kept in the hold like for the majority i mean they were let up on deck sometimes but the crew was so worried that they were gonna like not know what the hell they were doing because they didn't and like fall overboard or get swept away by a, a wave or something that they almost the entire time kept them in the cargo hold right for the entire journey for a 10 week trip yeah yeah and, and there, you know, there's not a ton of room. They, I mean, they they were basically on top of each other in this little cargo hold, and so it's yeah, no wonder that there was so much disease. Even though at the end, only only one person died. Right. It was like a one an endanger, a kid that was working as an endangered servant for one of the families was the only death. But there was no population change among the pilgrims because they also there was a baby born on the ship oh. too. <laughs> Which actually, I'll mention that real quick. So that that. 
that is accurate. And they kind of make a point of like his proud dad who kind of holds him up and jokes or not jokes. He says, haha, I'm going to call him Oceanus Hopkins. So I had to look that up. That's that's accurate. Oceanus Hopkins was yeah. born and it was the only person born along on, on the trip. Yep. Though sadly, he so what sucks or is ironic? I don't know. He survived that harsh first winter as an infant, but then died when he was like six or seven. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting and uh, and worth noting. And I'll talk about his dad here uh, later. So yes, yeah, so what about like uh, William Brewster and all the pilgrims and stuff beforehand? So William Brewster, he's the uh, basically the religious leader of the of the group of the pilgrims. He's played in the movie by Richard Crenna that we talked about earlier from the from the Rambo movies. He was born in 1566 or 1567. Um, in his early life, he was educated at Peterhouse, Cambridge which is the oldest constituent college of Cambridge. It was actually founded in 1284. Hmm. I thought that that was kind of interesting. Like, I thought my school, Arizona State, was old because it, you know, oh, it dates all the way back to 1885. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is 600 years older than that. (laughs) And it's like a, it's a, the the Wikipedia page for this college was really interesting. So I actually do have a couple of notes about it. Um, Okay. Just some notable alumni, really. James Clerk Maxwell, the father of electromagnetism, hmm. uh, is an alumni. Lord Kelvin, the guy that Kelvin, the yeah. Kelvin <laughs> scale is named after, he's an alumni. David Mitchell, the British comedian. I don't know if you are familiar with like a peep show. Oh, no, no, not really. Have you, have you ever seen either like a screenshot or a video, like a short video clip or a meme where it's a guy in like Nazi SS outfit and he says, are we the baddies? Yeah, yeah. That's David Mitchell. Oh, that's funny. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Sam Mendes, the oh, director yep. of American uh, 1917. Yep. He, he went there as well. Huh. So, anyways, tangent aside, William Brewster, that's one of the reasons why he was elected, well, not elected, but basically chosen as their leaders because he was like the only person that was educated even a little bit. After school, he began working for the ambassador to the Netherlands in 1584, so he uh you know kind of got some experience working in like the diplomatic arena and he became involved in puritanism which this is something that i i guess i never really thought about or realized but he wasn't like a puritan you know raised his entire life that way he only became involved in it not that long before his voyage on the mayflower it was like the late 1590s or like shortly after 1600 hmm. like within 20 years of his voice. But all these movements were relatively new. I mean, they're they're these they're yeah. most decades old at this point. Yeah. But uh it's funny so on the Wikipedia page they said that one of the ways that you can tell that he's converted to puritanism is because his children that are born after that time have really puritan names. And I just want to go over the names of his kids because his first one Jonathan, nothing significant there. Patience, that's a little more different. But, you know, like, I, there's, that's still, that's a nice name. I've, I've heard the name, yeah. Uh, his third daughter is named Fear, and then he had, then there's Love, and then his youngest child is named Wrestling. <laughs> what? Oh, like, like, yes. Wrestling with Guilt or something like that? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But, yeah, his, yeah, his, so his children, Jonathan, Patience, Fear, Love, and Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't mention that in the movie. Love that. But uh, yeah, so he gets involved in Puritanism around 1600, and the Church of England, like we talked about, was basically trying to kind of push these Puritans out because they were not necessarily causing problems for the Church of England, but just, you know, their authority was kind of being challenged a little bit. So he took his congregation, and they wanted to flee to Holland. They tried once in 1607 and were unsuccessful, and then they were then successful the next year in 1608. Uh, when he was in Holland, he started printing books that were really critical of King James, and obviously King James was not a fan of that, so he was started trying to, you know, arrest him, and he was actually arrested by the Dutch, but the Dutch were kind of sympathetic to his cause and told the English, hey, uh, this is the wrong guy, we we let him go, um, and they didn't turn him over to the English. We see that in the movie where he's kind of a wanted man, like he even has, yeah, yeah. he even like boards the ship right. uh, in, in secret. And that's, I don't know if, if that specifically is true, but... The, well, right, but that it's representative of the truth. Him being in hiding is legit. Like, he was in hiding for, like, a couple years and basically only came out of hiding to get on the Mayflower and okay, go to Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he, uh, 
yeah, gets on the Mayflower in 1620, and he's their de facto religious ruler until 1629. Then they get another guy, I forget the, the guy's name, but he kind of then shows up and becomes their like official religious leader. But he still is, you know, heavily involved in religious life in the Plymouth colony until 1644 when he dies. Yeah, so what I was reading that said the the entire congregation was was really close knit. They really were a very kind of like tight community and above about 400 people mm-hmm. only and about a quarter of that was able to make the trip. They knew it was going to be tough, so they kind of made a point of sending the younger and stronger first and then the hope would be that the others would be able to follow, but then this led to lots of like yeah. heartbreaking that you're basically splitting up families as you're saying okay, okay, the little ones need to stay as we go off on the ship and across the ocean for a couple months and so yeah kind of a heartbreaking thing there but they just kind of saw it as what was the long-term best interest of their of their congregation so again just the numbers that never really occurred to me before is like how many people were on the ship what percentage of that was actually you know separatists and then what percentage of the congregation that was and everything so yeah the, the, and the movie then really is just like so we, so we see we see them boarding the ship Brewster is hiding under the floorboards. The English even come through and are inspecting the ship, looking for him as a wanted man. And they're kind of yelling at Anthony Hopkins. And the real Anthony Hopkins wasn't on the ship. They're yelling at Christopher Jones, who was played by <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, they don't find him. They don't find him because he's he's underneath the floorboards in the cargo hold. Which again, I'm like, I feel like that's compromising the ship because like the captain didn't know they did that. So they basically had torn up floorboards to hide their pastor underneath here without telling the captain they were tearing up floorboards of his ship they don't really go into that side of it other than he's mad later when he discovers the guys on the ship but more just because and rightly so like <laughs> anthony hopkins makes a good point he's like uh if the king finds out about this like i could be executed at, at the worst at the very least like lose my ship right right like that was kind of a dick move, <laughs> right? And I, and I don't know to what extent that was accurate. Like, so right, yeah, I, the yeah. British may not have ever even boarded, but the, but he was wanted, and they were kind of made just using that to illustrate how he was wanted. Well, I guess okay. So I guess maybe I'm off on the numbers here, though. Then they said 92 passengers, and we said about 100 of the church members. But so is that the passengers plus then another like 50 to 100 crew, or how many people were actually on 50, about 50? 50, about 50 for the crew. Okay, so it was about 150 people total on the ship. So two-thirds yeah. were the passenger pilgrims or whatever. Okay, okay. Yeah. But yeah, and they do, again, things in the movie that they do kind of highlight. So again, they are kind of, they're derisively called separatists in the movies. Right. Some of the people are saying, you know, hey, you're dangerous hypocrites and England is well rid of you. And how, again, because in my mind, all growing up, I just pictured the entire ship was this congregation. But when you get the sailors singing these lewd sea shanties just because they know it will be particularly offensive to these Puritan separatists and they're just trying to, they're basically just trying to get a rise out of them. Which I kind of liked that. I kind of thought that was a little funny. I was like, yeah, get them. <laughs> Make the Karens squirm. <laughs> and then, and then, and then Brewster basically says, like, tells the captain, like, can you tell him to cut it out? And he's like, that's where he kind of says, you all are cargo. No, I'm not going to tell him to cut yeah. it out. Right. Which then does, does come full circle a little bit when they show the uh, when the storms. Is kind of, so the first part of the uh, trip is fairly smooth sailing, and pun intended, I guess. Uh, but then they run into some storms, and they just kind of are relentless. And it gets to the point they show yeah. in the film where this kind of main beam is just starting to go mm. and they can't they you know they got a replacement beam they just can't get to stay and then the pilgrims are like oh hey well we brought this giant metal jack we we're going to use to make our houses when we get to the new world let's try that and sure enough it works and kind of holds the main beam in place that happened that's yeah true. yeah yeah that was real so yeah. now in the movie then they make that kind of the moment where the captain decides to have a whole new respect for them and makes sure that he'll keep his sailors in line and stuff after that that part's probably not super accurate but the fact that they did bring that beam in i thought was really cool that that was accurate yeah they do mention the other ship the speed whale in the film as well and the timing on all this is a little tricky like in the film and to me it makes it seem like they had made it quite a ways out before the speed had to turn around yeah that's it would have been earlier right yeah well and and they tried multiple times because the speedwell was having issues with its leaking and stuff yeah. and like they, they they had tried a couple times to leave but the leaking was too much so they went back and then they tried again and it's leaking too much so they went back 
And that it was, I think, two or three times. That the they, film cuts all that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that they tried to leave. And then eventually they're like, all right, we're just going to take as much supplies that we can from the Speedwell. And like, you know, uh, some of the people from the Speedwell then got on the Mayflower. Then the Mayflower kind of went on its own. But that was, yeah, that the existence of the Speedwell and then the fact that it turned around because of leaking, that's all... That's all true. It's just they just condense the timeline a little bit. Yes, there you go. Yeah. So ultimately, when we hear about the Mayflower coming over, it was supposed to be two ships. Yeah. Uh, The Speedwell couldn't make it and had to turn back. And in real life, Miles Standish was on the Speedwell. Mm, Okay. Okay. Initially, which he's one of the main characters in the movie who's shown to be on the Mayflower the whole time. But that's not that's not true. He was actually on the Speedwell at first and then came over when they transferred the some of the cargo and the people to the Mayflower. Well, well, actually, yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about Miles Standish real quick and his role. What, he, what was he doing beforehand and then as we get to Plymouth? So Miles Standish is actually kind of an interesting character. He was uh, a military guy, and he was actually, again, not uh, similar to Captain Jones, not a Puritan right, necessarily. Right. He was just hired by the Puritans because, you know, he was somebody with military experience and they wanted someone that had military experience to help them set up their defenses in the new world. And so that's how he became involved with the Mayflower in the first place. It wasn't because he was actually a Puritan, which I didn't really know. The name Miles Standish sounded a little familiar to me. I don't know if I had heard about him at some point before, but I don't know. I don't know where I would have maybe in a history class or something, but Anyways, that's neither here nor there. He, he was the he was the most familiar name to me. Like I, I was like, maybe the symptoms even did something with him at some point. Like the name Miles Standish. Oh, like, really? That was like the name. If you had told me to name anybody from any of this, it would have been Miles Standish, and I couldn't think of another name. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I, I don't think I would have known his name. Okay. But like when when I saw the name, I was like, oh, okay, that sounds that sounds familiar. But yeah, so he he was a, a veteran of some conflicts in the Netherlands, which we actually talked about. In the one of the Cardinal Richelieu episodes of the most interesting person in history tournament, with all the conflicts that were going on in Europe around that time with Queen Elizabeth the first and then James, and how there was like the the English and the Spanish and the Dutch and the French were all kind of involved in these different conflicts. Anyways, he was a veteran of the the Dutch part of that, okay, okay that conflict. And so he gets hired by the colonists. They go to the New World. And most of the stuff that we know about him is actually after the journey. Right. So, like, there's not a ton about him before because he's just kind of a... He's just on the ship because his role is later. Right. But he's... um. Oh, my gosh. What's the word? He's a... He's inheriting. He inherited. He's he's a beneficiary. His father is like a, a minor noble guy. I, I don't I don't know what word I'm looking for. Anyways. He comes from a little bit of money. Okay. Editor Rich jumping in. I'm sorry, Logan. I believe the word you were looking for is aristocrat. That was aristocrat. And that's how he kind of gets his position as an officer in the British military is because of his family standing. But that's pretty much most of what we know about him before he gets on the Mayflower. Then he gets on the Mayflower, goes to the New World, and he's like heavily involved in negotiations and different conflicts with different Native American tribes. So he would have been one of the guys who's like meeting with and talking to Squanto, the very famous Native American who we know about from all of the, you know, Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving lore. And he was involved in a bunch of different like treaties and alliances and attacks and counterattacks. I mean, there, there. You can find like entire hour-long documentaries just about his exploits of the New World. But yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what he was doing: military stuff, negotiation stuff, treaty stuff. And then, yeah, he lived until his seventies and was basically doing that stuff the entire time. So, just kind of a very important person for the early days of the Plymouth Colony, and it the fact that it did endure is largely a testament to a lot of his work. But there was also a lot of other people that were part of that community, obviously. Yeah. Yep. And he, um, uh, the whole thing about him and Priscilla Mullins and John Alden and their kind of love triangle that they talk about in the movie. Apparently, that is 
all based on a poem called The Courtship of Miles Standish by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh Uh-huh. And that's one of the reasons why he was like this... I mean, he was an important historical figure, but the reason why he's like so famous today and basically was this like folk hero, especially in like Victorian England and Victorian America, is because of this poem. Okay. We kind of brought his name back up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Similar to Paul Revere, how he kind of got more notoriety after they wrote about him, yeah. Yeah. And so that's actually a good transition into John Alden and Priscilla Mullins. Yes. Because they're, I mean, they're, they're not super historically significant, but they both were on the Mayflower. Uh, they were one of the, probably not the first, but one of the first couples that was married in the New World. And that actually met on the Mayflower. And they met on the Mayflower, yeah, because John Alden was the copper, the barrel or baker cooper, guy Co- cooper uh cooper cooper yeah not not copper <laughs> i wrote it down as copper but it is cooper <laughs> he, he wasn't a police officer <laughs> barrel maker guy for christopher jones so he wasn't a puritan uh but priscilla mullins was and they met and i i guess for a long time there was like it was like oh you know that that whole love triangle story that that was made up you know mostly entirely made up by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Like, yeah, those three people were in the Plymouth Colony and on the Mayflower at the same time, but it's not really historically accurate. But I guess that there is some circumstantial evidence, like Miles Standish and John Alden. It says that they, on their on the Wikipedia page for Priscilla, that they were roommates. So, like, Priscilla would have been around both of them at the same time. And with Miles Standish being this famous guy, John Alden being a single guy, and Priscilla being basically the only single married, marryable age woman on the Mayflower. Like she would have been desirable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There probably was a you know, some sort of love triangle dynamic between the three of them. But exactly how much of it you know is similar to what we see in the movie no one no one probably will ever know well it can't it can't have been because there's no way in real life that woman gives john alden the time of day because he did nothing other than exist to be a desirable companion well that's true yeah that's true (laughs) right and talk to her and be nice to her and then he's like but what about our relationship and she's like what relationship correctly is like what the hell are you talking about what relationship? Like, might I talk to you again tomorrow? Sure. You like another guy? Who are you again? <laughs> yeah, but did she ends up marrying him? I don't. It, yeah, I did not like this movie. They were the worst <laughs> part, though. I was just saying their relationship is the worst part of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But that's like that's like the whole movie. Thirty <laughs> percent of the movie. <laughs> again, I don't like it. I just didn't hate it. <laughs> I was bemused by this film with going in with very low expectations. So I wanted to talk about a couple of the characters that are not in the movie that you could argue should have been. Or actually, another character who was first. So the rich jerk that no one likes who says he's the, mm. the governor or whatever is Christopher Martin. Yeah. So he is... This is kind of accurate, but also a few things are combined here. So... There was a Christopher Martin. He was actually first the governor of the Speedwell. And then when it was not able to continue, he moves over to the Bra- the, the Mayflower. Was briefly the governor of the Mayflower, but was soon replaced by John Carver, who I'm going to talk about here in a second, too. And Martin was kind of a, a, a Puritan with, with uh, sympathies to what the Pilgrims were doing. But he wasn't actually part of their congregation. He, again, he just had similar issues with the church. He was from a wealthy family, had started selling off all his holdings in England a few years before going to the United States. And he, very accurate, obviously, in the movie, he was a jerk. No one liked this guy. Uh, the quote is, he immediately began to abuse his authority. Historians are even confused as to why he was chosen as governor of the Speedwell in the first place. Uh, because, again, he wasn't one of them, and no one liked him. That That's about the extent of what there is about him. I just I did think it was interesting that they kind of did nail his personality as just this entitled asshole. And again, I hate to ever be pleased with someone's death. But for those who have seen the film, it might, in, <laughs> it might entertain you to learn that 
he and his wife both died like two months after they got to the New World. <laughs> well, uh, like half of the colonists died. Well, no, no, exactly, exactly. But like, like fifty of them died that winter. Right, but hey, the baby Oceanus lives, but then the jerk right. Martin and his wife, who basically even in the movie says like, "Yep, I'm a jerk too." <laughs> yeah, they uh, they did die just in January, just two months after uh, they got there. So the John Carver character, again, he's not in the movie. He was likely the governor of the Mayflower for kind of the bulk of the trip, and then also was the first governor of Plymouth Colony once they arrived. And even uh, later historians even called him like the Moses of the Pilgrims. So you could argue they kind of just maybe combined a lot of these different roles. Came in Brewster. Exactly, exactly. So they kind of combined. We always talk about on the show how real life is way more complicated and the dynamics of everything at play in real life, you just can't summarize in a 90-minute film. Yeah. So you eliminate right. John Carter and just say William Brewster is the leader. And you just have the leader. Right. Yeah, because it's it's a lot harder to, like, especially in a 90-minute made-for-TV movie, it's a lot harder to demonstrate the nuances between, well, this is how John Carver was doing the governor stuff, but he wasn't the religious leader. That was right. Brewster, but he didn't really have the same authorities that the other guy has. And so they're like, it's like, no, just mash them together, make them the same guy. This guy's the leader. Yes. And let's, yeah, let's go. So John Carver was the first person to sign the Mayflower Compact, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, and he may have actually even been the person who wrote it. Again, the, neither he nor the Mayflower Compact, Kyle. Why is that a tongue twister? Neither he nor the Mayflower <laughs> Compact are mentioned in the movie. Mm-hmm. Basically, so they were actually, their their uh, their mandate from England was they were supposed to establish a colony just north of Jamestown. They were actually headed towards Virginia, but the storms we mentioned that kind of forced them all to hunker underneath and you know almost scuttled the ship or whatever, kind of forced them off course up north. And then when they land in Massachusetts, what is now Massachusetts, yeah, they... Where maybe well, maybe we need to make it south where we're belonging, and then there's they. It just became logistically not possible based on their limited resources. They just needed to kind of right. hunker down where they were in advance of winter, and they were just going to be at more risk if they tried to keep moving. Yeah. So because of that, and the fact that you have this kind of disparate group that yes is partly these separatists, but is then also partly these crew members and people like Miles Stanis who have been hired. And we're not where we're supposed to be. And it's like, so what are we supposed to do? So they basically got together and signed a compact to basically agree, hey, we are all in this together. We're going to establish a colony in this area now, not what we were originally supposed to do. We are still all loyal servants of King James. We are representing England in this new world with this new colony. And we're all in this together. They made a compact, the Mayflower Compact. Right. And so that was what was signed by like, 41 of the men on on board there or whatever. And uh, John Alden, who we just talked about, he was actually the last surviving member. So he was the oldest the, uh, of all the dudes who signed. He oh, okay. was the one who lived the longest. He lived all the way till 1687, I think. Right, right. And again, kind of yeah. highlights the whole thing, too. We mentioned, again, I had always thought this was an entire ship of, quote-unquote, pilgrims. And again, they were separatists. That, that separatists, later the term pilgrims was used. But yeah, someone like a John Alden signing with someone like a John Carver kind of highlights that they was this was more yeah. than just this one congregation this was everyone on the ship who wanted to stay and, and you know some people did go back like you said with right. jones and stuff but everyone who wanted to stay was in this together signed a compact so stating that they were going to govern themselves here together as a unit and not be like oh the pilgrims are doing their own thing over there and then the ship's crew are doing their thing over here and we're kind of it, so it wasn't that it was a united community under the mayflower mayflower compact yeah then the other important character not in the movie is William Bradford. Probably makes sense because he was on the ship, but he wasn't necessarily significant on the ship at all. He was one who became, once they got to the, the colony uh, or established the colony, he was ended up being the second governor of the colony. And he's actually the one who is credited with applying the term pilgrims to this group was William Bradford. So it wasn't like a historian thing way later, but it was kind of like once they're there and established, he kind of saw them as pilgrims. And actually even kind of ties into uh, what we're saying with uh, the John Carver guy being like the Moses of of the pilgrims and the whole idea of this trip in, in the first place, them feeling they were kind of 
blessed by God and that they were they kind of saw this as yeah. or they even called themselves the congregation here God's new Israel. So like they kind of saw like no we're doing what is right by God and he's going to bless this voyage and this colony. And again, so you you kind of think about that mindset when you're thinking about what the word pilgrims means, you know, you go on a pilgrimage, you go and kind of like, right. You know, dedicate a a trip to some, you know, sacred place. And so then it kind of makes sense with that context. You can see that these separatists wouldn't have seen themselves as pilgrims in that sense, because they're not going to a place like that. But then if Bradford's saying after the fact that, no, we were kind of on a pilgrimage for God, even if it was to a new place. Anyway, it's all kind of interesting there. So now once we're in, so like that kind of covers the film here. I want to just spend a, a little bit talking about the part that's not in the film, because we're going to jump ahead, you know, a few decades here going forward. So I just wanted to kind of talk about how they get everything settled here in the new world. Well, before that, I did want to kind of talk about something that they they kind of... They kind of show it in the movie, um, but they don't really go into as much detail, and it's definitely not as like gritty and gruesome as and horrible as it would have been in real life. But like the living conditions on the Mayflower oh, itself, yeah, yeah, because it's overcrowded. Because yeah, you basically have people as cargo, it, right? Super overcrowded. They do talk about how you know they run out of fresh food, and their you know their flour is like infested with weevils and stuff. Yeah, and- weevils and and grubs and uh, roaches, and they're having to sift those out of the flour. And that's that's all true. Uh, that's and that that stuff happens on. That's like, common. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Basically, any maritime voyage at this time, you know, you're dealing with that. But they uh, they would have ran out of fresh food. They, their diet basically would have consisted entirely of like dried and salted fish and salted pork and then something called hardtack uh like hardtack biscuits which is basically like a lambus bread from lord of the rings even worse imagine like a hockey puck made out of flour and water and salt and like just a really just yeah a hard you know clump of this uh, yeah hardtack and so that's what they're and they and they would not have been drinking water uh, which we actually see in the in the movie, they're drinking beer, and that's accurate. That would have been their main source of hydration was beer, because beer keeps better than water for long periods of time. Yeah, it's super common in the time, like in general, because even right. when you're not at sea, clean water was so hard to come by. And I've I've read I read too that I talk about where like, but the alcohol percentages were way lower. Like, what's beer in the United States? Oh yeah, three point yeah, yeah. two. This, yeah, this yeah, might yeah. have been 0.5 or one percent alcohol. Right. Yeah. It's it's basically like. Yeah, lightly fermented beer, you know, yeah, not very alcoholic. It would not have really, it it wouldn't have been carbonated because it's been sitting in a wooden barrel for like Mm. two months and it's warm. So it's not, they're not like cracking cold, you know, Miller lights or anything like. It's not a party. Yeah. (laughs) This is, uh, it's gross. They're, it's salted, salted meats, salty, hard biscuits and beer. So they're like all super dehydrated Mm. and getting sick. Like the nutritional value you get from this stuff is almost nothing. I mean, it's basically just enough to keep you alive, keep you from not dying. And they mentioned in the movie, someone getting scurvy, uh, which I don't think the the person who died wasn't necessarily scurvy, but that's why you always had like oranges and lemons and stuff usually on these ships right but i guess they ran out of that stuff too or or i guess there's other ways there's other sources of vitamin c i guess but i don't know enough about scurvy i i don't know if they well maybe they just didn't have enough or you know because that that stuff goes bad too like fruit will spoil right you're for 10 you're at 10 weeks on a ship it's hard to have enough citrus fruit right yeah yeah and uh something else that kind of made their journey like extra terrible was and they i think they do i think Christopher Jones says something about the westerly winds make it very slow going from England to America. Oh, okay. You're basically going into the wind, and there would have been days where they did nothing but like had the sails up and were getting blown backwards and just had to wait for a day when the wind was blowing in the right direction to put their sails down. So like the journey is is super, super slow going there. And then on the way back, they get back in like a month. It's like four weeks. Oh wow! Like less than half the time Crazy. on the return trip, which makes sense when you're in a you're in a sailboat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The prevailing winds blow from west to east, huh. so like, yeah, going from the New World back to England, piece of cake. That's crazy. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. But it's just really, really hard to go the other way. It'd be, yeah. it'd be like like on a highway, and the speed limit one way is thirty five miles an hour, and the speed limit the other way is seventy five miles an hour. And it's just like, well, that stinks. Yes. <laughs> 
Yep. And again, the reason this whole colony is significant, because it is a relatively small congregation. You think about this being an, an important part of the history of the United States and the history of North America, that it must have been this massive colony. And it's like, well, no, it was basically after that first winter, it's like 50 people left. But it, it was kind of a timing thing. So the Jamestown colony had struggled so much, it went down to 50 from like 500. This one actually was more successful because it only lost half the first winter. Um, but if we look at yeah. the the history of colonies in what is now the United States. By Again, I didn't do an exhaustive research here, but by my count, the Plymouth colony was about the sixth attempt at a European colony in what is now the United States. So first was actually a bin in the area of Pensacola, uh, Pensacola, Florida by the Spanish, but it didn't last very long because of weather, and they kind of just were only there for like a, a few years, and then they had to leave because it wasn't tenable just based on the weather and storms and stuff kind of blew, the, blew them out of there, and they moved, moved on elsewhere. Two, though, however, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, mm-hmm. which still exists today, is actually the oldest yep. uh, continuous city, but it was Spanish, so it wasn't part of the early United States. There's actually, there was a, a really cool old Spanish fort in St. Augustine, Florida. If any, Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone's ever been down there, that's a, that's a really cool... Right. The fort is still there from like the 1500s. Yeah. And the, uh, it, you know, they have a bunch of like the, you know, cannons and stuff. It's... Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah, cool spot. Third would have been Roanoke, Virginia, the famous Lost Colony, where everyone just kind of vanished, and we still don't technically know, right, where they all ended up. And then four would have been Jamestown, which we talked about last time with uh, the New World and the Pocahontas stuff there in Virginia. The fifth would have been actually the Dutch colony of the New Netherlands, with New Amsterdam becoming New York City later and all that kind of stuff. And then the sixth was the Plymouth Colony in what is now Massachusetts, established by the Pilgrims. So you can see where it kind of fits... Just because it's an, they're basically they're early adopters. So were they that important of a congregation in and of themselves? Well, no, but they were significant. And again, it's, it comes out of timing. They were just yeah. kind of right place, right time. And Plymouth, Massachusetts, is still there. Like so, right. This is important for for all those reasons. And they're kind of oh, so supposedly after uh, he broke the four minute mile, Roger Bannister said in French, you know. Après moi, le, le déluge, where basically, like, after me, the flood. So even though they were the sixth, this is kind of where the dam breaks. And after the pilgrims, and now everybody's coming over. So yeah. they were not the first, which is the fourth was Jamestown. That was 13 years earlier. Well, then basically right, right. on the heels of Plymouth, everyone starts coming. Yeah. So the 1620s is like when you just start having the whole eastern seaboard. That's a... Uh... Something that I was reading about when I was looking at the stuff for Miles Standish was interactions that he was having with like Native American tribes, but also then with additional colonies that were coming in and their cooperation. There was one colony that they said that was uh, in a colony, a colony made up entirely of men hmm. who established this colony, and they started, uh, you know, like drinking real heavy and partying all the time, and the Puritans didn't like it, and then there was this. They supposedly had information. They were, like, starting to sell guns to the Native Americans. So then Miles Standish went and, like, was going to go arrest the leader of this colony for all of their, you know, crimes. And (laughs) these guys, like, locked themselves in one of their buildings and then, you know, eventually, like, came out and were going to fight Miles Standish and his dudes. But they were all too drunk to fight. And, like, (laughs) the guy, like, shoved a gun in Miles Standish's face but was, like, so drunk that Miles Standish basically just pulled the gun out of his hands (laughs) and arrested him. And they take him. There's, there's like, all kinds of stories like that of of Miles Standish with their, you know, different interactions and stuff that he was with other colonies, not just the Plymouth colony, but other colonies that came after. Was that the group up by Boston by any chance? Because I thought I saw something about uh, an unruly group that they basically had to team up with the Native Americans to go and actually kind of preemptively fight because it was like a colony that was getting out of hand. I don't know if that was the same one or if I'm getting things mixed up, but it's also kind of... I forget the name. It's also kind of funny if that is Boston, (laughs) even back then, like... <laughs> so we we could be wrong, but if that's like the oranges of Boston, I'm like, yeah, that probably sounds about right. <laughs> that's funny. I also like the idea of or, no women. It's like, all right, this is the beginning of a thousand year colony. Uh, uh, oops. <laughs> oops. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there's a there's a certain amount of like, yeah, we we know about this, you know, the the Plymouth colony because you know it was it was one of the first successful colonies and you know the the story of the pilgrims and everything but it's definitely been held up 
like in American lore as this origin story of America, specifically because of its, you know, religious context, the Puritanism that is, you know, hand in hand with basically everything that happens in early America is this connected to this, you know, Puritanism. Well, even how to this day, the United States is seen as just a little more puritanical than Europe. And it's because of this kind of thread that's kind of woven in from the beginning. Yeah, right. And then the, you know, with American Thanksgiving and the legend of the the Thanksgiving feast with the pilgrims and Squanto, like, it's that stuff, too, that's really cemented this Plymouth colony, you know, in American lore, even if most of the stuff I think that we learn about it, especially as little kids, is like historically dubious at best right well and and at the same time too i guess in the defense of the american education system which i don't really necessarily step step into to defend how else are you going to explain this to a seven-year-old <laughs> yeah but but you're but i guess it's never it's never necessarily course corrected um so yeah i actually i do want i do want to talk about that so we talked about the timing and everything up to now there's actually another big piece we have not mentioned when it comes to being lucky with the timing of all this if the Pilgrims have a, had arrived just five years earlier, Plymouth would have been occupied. The natives were all over oh, this area. Right. There wasn't space for uh, a new colony to come over. And earlier attempts had maybe even kind of been like batted away or fought away. So when the Pilgrims did arrive, the natives, and, and you know, I'll kind of come back and tell this whole thing here, but they weren't surprised to see them. For the last century, the tribes of this area had been dealing with Europeans. And whether that was, you know, early attempts at colonies, or or I guess I should say uh, trading and stuff, uh, fights, and just kind of everything. But in the, because of the European contact, a big plague in like 1616, 1617, 1618 wiped out most of the tribes living in this area. Like 90% of the native population was killed by this plague. Yeah. So then a few years later, this group on the Mayflower rolls in and like, oh, look at all this land available to start a colony. Yeah, it was only open because all the natives had just died. Right. And so the first, and we mentioned the harsh first winter. So it's kind of tricky too. So they didn't actually meet the natives until the spring, but they did survive that first winter because they had basically stumbled upon some food stores that the natives had left behind, not even like as an intentional thing, like, hey, these will help these white strangers. It was more like they had set up like some burial sites, offerings. Basically, there was, there was like cor- offerings of like corn and food and stuff at these Native American burial sites. And the pilgrims are like, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> yeah. So that got them through the, the first winter. And then finally, in the spring, Sama said, actually, like the chief of this, uh, again, I suck at all keeping all this stuff straight. straight. There was, it was like the Wapanag or whatever is like the area, but then I've heard like Algonquin is like the larger group, and all the different things are crazy complicated here. But he basically shows up and says, "Welcome, Englishmen," like that in English, and they're like, "Wait, right. what is happening?" It's like, well, because because yeah. again, they had had contact over the last century with Europeans, right. so he's like, "Oh, hey, welcome, Englishmen," like, <laughs> and they're well, just kind of blown away. We had talked about. In the Pocahontas episode, how, uh, you know, right, uh, right. Squanto was taken as a slave, basically, to England and then brought back. And he, so he would have known English. Right. And yeah, so yeah, they, they show up, they, they're speaking English. Um, the whole, the thing about the, the plague, that's actually a really interesting, like, coincid- like horrible coincidence of history. And there's actually, there's a good book about it called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Hmm. And actually, CGP Grey did a good video about it, about how... The reason that the plague was only one way, like that the natives were all dying from contact with Europeans, but the Europeans weren't catching a bunch of plagues from them, is just because of... Animals, yeah. The fact that the way that animals evolved in different parts of the world meant that the Europeans had been exposed to all these plagues already because they were living with and around domesticated animals for... Right. a, A thousand years. Right. And... Uh, Native Americans were not because there are no animals in the Americas that you can domesticate other than like alpacas right, in right. the Andes Mountains. But like you can't you can't domesticate antelope. You can't domesticate bison. Right. So yeah, all these diseases come over to the to humans through right. animals in close proximity. In yeah, filth. Yes. living in filth makes you immune to disease. <laughs> right. That's where plagues come from. You you get flu from pigs and chickens. You get right. smallpox from cows. Like that's and so that 
Amer- or the uh, Europeans come over and are, you know, already carriers, but immune for all these diseases. And yeah, 90% of the native population is wiped out. Right. So yeah, so then, yes, the role of, of Squanto. So then, so yeah, basically the first winter, half of them die of disease. It actually seemed to be more disease than starvation. It was, it was mostly disease. I think they took them out that first winter. Um, in the spring, then the natives make contact and they sign a treaty pretty early on. And it, basically because though there was a neighboring tribe that wanted the pilgrims help. So it was kind of mutual. It's like, hey, we'll help feed you and teach you to farm this land but also like if this other tribe next door like wants to fight can you help us so it was it was definitely mutually beneficial there at first and then famously squanto um who has another fuller name i i kind of forget that's a good point we should squanto is not actually his name right that's just what he's i think it's what the basically a nickname it's like a really anglicanized anglis anglicized yeah is that the right anglicized? It's a it's a it's what the <laughs> colonists would have called him, but that wasn't actually his name. I just don't think they could pronounce it, or they didn't care to. Just like us right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you're looking up his his real name here. He was basically because he spoke English so well. He was kind of put in charge of being the liaison, and so that's why he famously was teaching them to farm, and he was kind of the go between. And he kind of, in a weird way, lucked out. He missed the plague because he had been captured seven years before and spent that time, like you said, over in Europe, you know, in, enslaved or whatever, learns the language, comes back to find his entire tribe has basically been wiped out by disease. But you know, he's now in this perfect position to help both sides here. Although also, what you don't learn in grade school, also kind of helping himself. He took advantage of the fact that he was the translator. And so he could basically go to the natives and be like, oh, yeah, hey, if you don't give me some some cool stuff to take back to them, who knows what they're going to do? And then he would just keep the stuff. But then we go to the, the settlers and say the same thing. Oh, yeah, these natives, man, I don't know if you don't give me some cool stuff. So basically he was like scamming. Good for him. Yeah, he was basically like scamming both sides. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. <laughs> so his, his real name was Tisquantum. Okay. So it's like close but yeah yeah then he's known as squanto because the english dudes that were talking to him couldn't were mispronouncing his name yes so again i always feel daunted when i'm trying to talk about the native tribes and we kind of said from the beginning and maybe it's a it's a week out but also if we're doing history and film there aren't a lot of movies about native tribes in what will become the united states pre-european involvement so i guess i'll use that as an excuse and the idea that we are discussing the history of the political entity, the United States, not the, yes. not the history necessarily of the landmass. So I hate to feel like we are neglecting the myriad of disparate tribes and just the rich history of all that went on here before. Um, and I always feel overwhelmed by trying to keep it all straight. But at the same time, like even today, there are... Again, according to what I Googled, uh, 574 nationally recognized tribes in the United States. Or maybe that was North America. So there's a lot to keep track of if you were even going to try to keep track of it. And again, there's not movies about this stuff that we, we could break down necessarily either. But yeah, the estimates of the number of Native peoples living in what is now the United States before European colonization range wildly. Anywhere from as low as 2 million to as many as 18 million in what is now the United States. Today, there are about 600,000 is all that's left from all those tribes. Although that's actually up from about 1890 when there was only about a quarter of a million. So some of those populations have, I hate to say rebounded. It's almost like when they talk about the resurgence of vinyl record sales. It's like, well, no, it's more than it was 20 years ago, but it's still nothing compared to what it was at its height. So similar with Native American yeah. populations. They're, they're up a tick from their low. So again, it's nice that they've avoided ex- uh, extinction and you know, groups are now pretty good about pre- preserving their heritage and all these kinds of, of things and keeping those languages alive. You don't want these languages to die out and then they're just gone forever. Right. So I want to I wanna, you know, tip our hat to all of that without really having the bandwidth to break it all down in maybe a way that that's uh that's fully uh, appropriate but and we will 
I mean, continue to bring it up as we can, but yeah, we'll continue to touch on it because it's gonna be a it's a huge. Well, no, right, the all next, the way through, right, the next hundred American sorry, history, next, yeah, the next couple hundred years here of our timeline as we're going through these films that will continue to be contacts with Native Americans, and we will kind of maybe talk right. more about individuals and tribes within that. But as far as the vast scope right. of everyone here, I, I, I honestly I don't don't even know where to begin, and that almost would be a whole different podcast. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, so I went to New England in 2011, flew into Boston, rented a car, drove around like the states there. And one of my favorite stops was actually just south of Boston. There's a museum that uh, was called Plymouth Plantation. Apparently, they just changed their name to Plymouth Patuxet. And Patuxet is just the village that was in this spot before the plague wiped it out. So it's kind of like the area there. But it's it's a replica village. Uh, that actually goes back to like they set it up in like 1947. I just got a huge kick out of it because so they have all everything set up as they you know the first you know basically what the first two couple decades of actual Plymouth would have looked like hmm. with historians slash actors fulfilling a role. So they're they're out there mm. carving the ships and building this stuff, and you you can go up and talk to the person who's building a house you know a timber house by hand. You go up and talk to him. Oh, yeah, I came over on the Mayflower with my wife. God bless her. She passed away a few years ago. But our, my, it's like everyone's in character and has a story if you go up and talk to them. It's oh, really, okay. really cool. Like, they're all NPCs, basically. Yeah. It's like you're going through the museum, and there's all these NPCs that you can go, and they'll, they'll it's, I thought it was fascinating. You're like, walk into the house. There's two women sewing. And you go and talk to them, and they're like, and they have their whole backstory of how they got there and who they are. They also tell you about, here's how we sew. So like, it's, yeah, I dug it. I dug it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that sounds very similar. I I don't remember if it was that detailed, but that sounds similar to the Jamestown. It's kind of a a living museum. Yeah. Similar situation where they have like the, like the, you know, the, their settlement is built like it would have been in the early 1600s and they have like their ship there. And, you know, there's, there are, I, I do remember people being dressed. This was like probably 15 years ago, but people that were, you know, dressed up like they were, you know, like you said, NPCs, but I don't remember if they had like the, the backstories and everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if it was that detailed, but it's, yeah, it sounds similar, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. Okay. I think we covered everything I wanted to cover here. We are we in good shape with the, with the Mayflower. Yeah, uh, so just for the movie, the the TLDR of this, the history is really interesting. The movie's not great, but if you are just really have to watch it, it is for free on YouTube. So yes, yes, and I would say I feel like showing it if you're a high school history teacher or something. I feel like yeah, your classes are going to be bored. You can almost maybe just allow for like a mystery science theater kind of thing, like just. If you're going to show it to a class, encourage them to just kind of have fun with it and make fun of uh, the guy playing John Alden. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could just kind of have the kids chime in and see if they could uh, woo the girl a little more successfully. Okay, so we're going to stay in New England, not surprisingly, for a while, because that's kind of where the whole United States is beginning here. Although I guess we, get, you know, Virginia wasn't New England. But yeah, uh, we are going to stay in this part of the world next time when we talk about the film The Crucible. The Crucible.